0: Hi, my name is Linda Monique and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Naral, a full-service digital agency. If you want to grow with a premium agency and have the ability to work with Jordan directly, then learn more at noral.com slash media and request a callback. That's dot com
1: slash media. My name's Jordan Michaelides, and I'm the host of Uncommon, a show that digs deep with unique individuals. If you like the episode, leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us to continue what we do on a weekly basis. Show notes are below in your app. Otherwise, for all previous guests, you can find them at morale.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. To watch the full video, just search Uncommon Show on YouTube to find our channel. Or if you want to keep up to date on social media, you can find us at uncommon underscore show on Instagram. With that being said, let's get into the episode. My guest this week is Linda Monique, founder of Almo Milk um, and Cream the Agency. I think uh, this will be a very interesting chat on food and beverage innovation in, I guess you'd call it, the non-dairy milk area. So, Linda, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. <laughs>
1: really exciting. I was, um, I was, it's so funny, like, doing this research and thinking of openers and stuff like that. Um, you've got a lot there, which is intriguing, but I've got to ask Silicon Valley, the series. Oh, yes. Uh, who's your favourite character?
0: Oh, my goodness. Um, what a tough question. Um, the one that ends up in China and never comes back. I, um, Eric Bachman.
1: Eric Bachman. <laughs> just, He's a brilliant comedian, by the way.
0: I, I He's brilliant. I would love him to, like, be a part of my team because sometimes when you get too serious, you just need someone, like, crazy <laughs> like that just oh. to really... Um, yeah, balance you out.
1: That I love on that show there's there's a scene where... Um, so I think it's at the end of the first season where they're, they're screwed because they're about to present it like the equivalent of TechCrunch, right? Yeah. And someone has come up with a better design for the algorithm to process something and then all of a sudden they talk about how they would jack off the entire room of dudes <laughs> and then it convinces the guy <laughs> that actually... The way to construct the algorithm is decentralized. Yes. Like, so it goes um, from the middle, and they call it middle out. Yes. But, like, just the way <laughs> that scene to me is like an iconic Silicon Valley scene because it, like, it just, I feel like it highlights the um, Aspergeriness of the industry and how intense people can get about nothing. Yes. If that makes sense.
0: No, it does. But Silicon Valley for me has been like, Entrepreneurs therapy. <laughs> um, it's something that I c- completely connect with, and sometimes we create this bubble around entrepreneurship, and we make it seem so glamorous. And but in fact, everything that's happened in Silicon Valley, everything from branding to just competition and ruthless, ridiculous, um, brutal horrible stuff happening it's happened to us so i'm (laughs) like oh my god silicon valley like just you know um connecting with that but um yeah
1: like it really has articulated that stuff so well and documented the little minutiae of like running a business and the pains of of having run a business um we were chatting before in the kitchen about uh backgrounds i It was really interesting reading about your first job at the age of 16, working at the Polish deli.
0: My God, you know too much about me already.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know a lot. (laughs) Um, Now, what is the thing that you, what, what nostalgia do you have the most from working at that deli?
0: Wow. So the owner actually had a missing finger. Oh, Wow. And, you know, when you're dealing with shaving kaiser hams, you sort of acquire all this knowledge about all these ridiculous types of smoked meats. Um, I remember um, working there every Saturday and Sunday starting 6am on weekends at the Victoria Market and just praying that I would not chop off my finger because I was so exhausted. And um, I think it's just, you know, to be honest, you um, It was a really great time for me because you get to connect with customers, you create sort of an elegance to serving um, customers and connecting and talking and building relationships, but also the knowledge of meat. um, (laughs) It was ridiculous. So you could ask me any type of meat, smoked meats, um, you know, I could tell you about how it's made, what to use it in, everything from ham hocks to double smoked Russian ham. It was
1: ridiculous. It's, it's so fascinating about how um, those Eastern European uh, countries and cultures, how much, like, preserved meats. Like, you can tell it's such a cold environment mm. and that the preservation of meat is, like, is absolute paramount.
0: Maybe I should write a book about, you know, just preserve, you know. that Preserved meats. Preserved yeah.
1: meats. Eastern Europe, uh, like a tour du jour of... Um, of preserved meats in Eastern Europe. That was one of my. F- that's the thing I enjoyed probably the most in Eastern Europe was all the different types of meats and whatnot mm, that you could try out. I've got to ask. Do you? Is there a particular preserve or tinned something that you'd love the most from those Polish, uh, I guess deli shops? Like as an example in South Melbourne, uh, when we would when we do go maybe once a month. We love going past. We love the lady got has her dyed her hair red in classic <laughs> Polish fashion. You buy like um, I think it's like mackerel. The jar of yes. is it mackerel? Yeah. Um, and they have Lauren's dad loves this thing called I think it's schmelz. Yeah. It's sort of like fat and like the runoff of um, like meat.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that it's you have just on pure bread. Fat. Yeah. Pork fat that literally you just put on bread.
1: So those two things are like just amazing to me what do you do you have something in particular
0: oh my god it sounds super weird but there's like meat in jelly or yep. fish in jelly and so for someone it would seem like canned dog food but <laughs> you would eat it with horseradish and that's really delicious and yeah. just gelatinous but yeah it's uh, it's something that you grow up learning about and um, experiencing and eating all these delicious random
1: foods and then overdosing on way too much meat. <laughs> do you have like an early memory of your childhood at all?
0: I do have. Um, I remember my grandmother coming to stay with us for a year um, okay. and making pierogi, which is like yeah. Russian or Polish style or Russian style pierogi dumplings. Uh-huh. But she would make them with blueberries. And, really? and apples. So you would have a fruit version, cream drizzled on top, and a bit of sugar, which is
1: so delicious. Damn. I've never had dessert-style pierogi. I know that they have them at the Polish festival that's on Mm. every year. But, yeah, I'm just used to having the the classic pork dumplings. Yeah. Fried style. You Um, get to the point where you overdose on pork and you're like, no more pork. Yeah, Um, it's a bit much. Like, it can really. And just the amount of... um, flour that must go into the casing as well. Yeah. You just feel you you have a good food coma afterwards.
0: Absolutely.
1: Do you think there is a particular lesson that you've learned from either of your parents growing up, like a principle that you hold with you today, something direct or indirect at all?
0: Value every cent. So Obviously, migrant background, uh, starting from nothing. My parents both came to Australia and I'm sure there's so many listeners that had parents that came to Australia with, you know, $20 or Mm. $500 in their pocket and basically started from scratch. So um, valuing money, even that dollar, uh, working for money and appreciating every dollar and everything you own. I think Mm. growing up, there was always an appreciation from um, just the clothes and how you presented yourself through to how you used and valued money, um, which was almost sometimes could be considered a little bit bad where you wouldn't spend money on yourself. You would save everything. Um, And I guess that really just taught me the principle of really creating something out of nothing.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think it's like that that uh, that value emphasis mm. like if you're going to spend money it has to be spent really really well like I remember my grandpa had like a three piece suit that he'd wear to the beach. It was like a zennia suit back in the day <laughs> um, but yeah those those like little things which sort of makes you in this modern era people would consider a penny pincher, but I would just almost consider it conscientious yes um. But yeah, it's it's a very common attribute amongst immigrant families. I think. Do you, your parents? Which um, do you, do you know how they came out here, or like when they came out here?
0: Yeah, really two very different stories. Um, my mum actually got a scholarship um, whilst she was a nurse to go work with heart surgeons in London. Okay. And the first cardiovascular surgeons that were doing heart transplants. So all of a sudden my mum got a pass out of Poland um, and could travel and eventually escaped to Greece and ended up meeting some Australians that were a part of the embassy and basically said, Gina, we need some nurses in Australia we'll organise some visas for you, Uh, just come on out. So through (laughs) living in Greece for over a year, my mother um, just met a bunch of Australians there that wanted her to come over. So that was mum's story, which was slightly easier. Dad was really hustling and trying to escape Poland during communist times and somehow ended up in New York where his auntie unfortunately had passed away. So dad recalls sort of and recounts these stories of being beaten up by Portuguese gangs in Brooklyn (laughs) uh, and then coming back to Poland and somehow going to Sweden to visit some of his other sisters. But the way in which he escaped um, ended up literally going down to Italy um, and being a part of a migrant camp and waiting to get a ticket out of Australia and it, uh, well, a ticket out of Italy, and eventually made it to Australia, where one of his other sisters had um, migrated to. So, dad just uh, stuck it out in some camp in Italy and was painting houses and doing all sorts of things. So Jeez. he had a bit of a harder slog getting to Australia.
1: Yeah, I think um, for my gran- my grandpa was um, back then. You could go on the Chandra's line, which was like this line that went from. London or sort of that area to Gibraltar, to Malta, to Greece, to Suez, to Sri Lanka, Perth, or like maybe stop through Malaysia or something like that. And um, I remember like he, his, his decision, which really determined that I was even born, was where is there not a Greek newspaper? Because <laughs> he was a printer. So that was number one. And where was there a large Greek population? And so the two cities came down to Melbourne and Buenos Aires, because wow. Melbourne is like the second, was the second biggest population outside of uh, Athens, still is today. Okay. And uh, I think it was because he, so he was from Cyprus, which was technically a British protectorate. Um, so he had British, like citizenship. Or like a protector. It's it's really weird. Uh, I've actually still got the passport. It's, That's it's incredible. Yeah, um, and so that gave him free range just to go to um, go to to Melbourne, wow. and here we are. And then he went met my grandmother, and then now we exist.
0: <laughs> what a story! I know they <laughs> have some life. interesting adventures. To think what they did back in that day and age to escape and set up a new life.
1: Yeah, it's it's part of the fable of being an immigrant, right? Part yes. of the story. Which is why I think I love stories.
0: I love stories yeah. too. I have way too many stories and yeah. I love listening to people's stories. Because like
1: you'd be sitting at the table and stories is like everything. You'd, like you'd have one family member and everyone would just go hush and they'd speak like deeply and then all of a sudden we would like erupt into like laughter or arguments or something like that. So that's like literally the reason why I, I love that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, it's, I feel like it's a commonality amongst like immigrant bra- backgrounds. Mm. Um, I know you you studied at or you went to high school Genazzano, went to Melbourne Uni for marketing. Um, you went on this exchange program in Milan and London, which is probably what sparked that curiosity for food, food and yes. food design in particular. I think, um, and then it was, I would say, probably being a contestant on MasterChef, which really accelerated that, because you probably would have learnt then and there that hospitality isn't your thing and, and food and beverage design is maybe more for you?
0: It's an interesting one. It's a love-hate relationship with hospitality um, and something that's always been in my blood from um, apparently grandparents who worked in incredible hotels as waiters to my dad. First job was hustling at the Hilton, which is literally around the corner here, the old Hilton Hotel. Oh, right. Um, it's now the having pa- yeah, having parties with Elton John and being the head barman and um, catering for these Jewish events uh, in Elston Wick in the day and age of the ni- 80s and 90s. Um, hospitality has always been in our family and that way of serving people and creating. And so I think cooking and combining that love of hospitality just came so naturally. Hmm. But MasterChef absolutely um, threw me into this whirlwind of food, cooking, restaurants in Melbourne. But it was actually a real dislike for um, how the industry was run. Um, And we're going back now. I was 21 at the time.
1: Mm.
0: Um, Just a real disconnect with obviously how um, restaurants and organisation essentially is run and sort of the lack of respect, the value, lack of values, mm. um, overuse of drugs and um, just abuse in general. I thought this is not a sustainable career, no. especially being a 21-year-old um, female. This is not going to end up being anything that I considered a dream.
1: No. I mean, I've worked in hospitality for years. I remember I wanted to be a similar and one of the first interviews we did was with my boss, Angie, from the press club, and she was, she was the one who really taught me about service. She would call it, like, philotimo. Ph- philotimo in Greek means, like, uh, humility. And um, that was sort of one of the first experiences I had in hospitality that taught me about that. But by and large, if you look at the industry, like, you don't meet many people that are there past the age of 40. Mm. You don't meet many, like most of the staff are casual staff. And you have a core of like 30% being full-time and they're a bit older and they've been in the industry for a while, but by and large, most of like casual staff that are brought in for seasonal stuff.
0: It's not like the Italian waiters that had that as their entire career and no. you'd see them gray-haired, you know, serving and...
1: It's very few and far between. Mm. It's only at like really, um, really restaurants that would have like a hat where you would expect that. So like the Press Club was one of the few restaurants I worked at where the bulk of staff were full-time career Ospo types and most of them were over the age of 40 and like really well seasoned. But even then like the chefs, just the pressure on the chefs is insane, the hours they would do. That's what I found interesting about all this stuff that happened recently with um, George Columbaris and how they got caught out. They self-reported about... um, the the monetary issue that they had where they weren't paying people the award Mm. but i was just thinking like the entire industry is based on that like have you ever met a chef who worked 30 or 40 hours a week only like they do 80 hours and they're on salary it's
0: unbelievable yeah
1: so uh, yeah the whole industry is pretty wild Mm. um do you remember like your first early moments of experimenting with food at all
0: yes I uh, was doing some baking uh, for a school bake-off and I wanted to make toffee. I knew that was such an Australian thing, you know, there's toffee with sprinkles on top. And I thought, okay, well, it's sugar, it's water, put it in a pan. Clearly didn't know the process, let it boil for a little bit. And I got this white syrup and of course it didn't set. And so it was an absolute failure. But there was this curiosity about, well, why did it actually fail? What? what is um what is cooking all about and i think it was just curiosity of observing watching food being made even when i was working um in hospitality jobs throughout university i would always watch the chefs look at how they were creating food and i would just simply observe experiment, fail a few times, and then be able to really make something amazing. Mm. Um, So it was just through uh, high school. But funnily enough, my mom's like, don't even study home ec. You're, you know, that's going to be absolutely stupid. It's not going to help you with university degrees and blah, blah. And that's just a passion. Forget about it. So (laughs) I was like, okay, I won't study that. I'll just do another math subject instead. So I ended up taking like three or four other subjects that were more science and maths focused,
1: which is really bizarre. Huh. But um, that probably did help build an awareness of what it takes to make something, if that makes sense. Like I feel like that mindset of having procedure would probably help with the eventual design of food products Mm. later on down the track.
0: Well, actually I would almost consider it a formula. It's like, I won't say a maths equation, but there is... Ingredients, there's a percentage of proportion where you can experiment and play with. There's limits to those ingredients. Then there is a method. And generally, if you can figure out the rules, you can start to really experiment and create and innovate and add creativity into cooking. Mm -hmm. So uh, even when I cook, I never measure. Essentially, Uh generally, aside from baking, where sometimes it might have to be absolutely precise. For any dish, I will always just throw things in and just based on taste um, or visually seeing what I'm actually adding and looking at the consistency, I can tell if something's going to be good or not. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, I, th- I, I think um, I can sort of see as you've gotten into food and beverage innovation that something like that would have really, really helped because it, it, ha- it does have to make you aware If you know what I mean, like you've got to be aware of, particularly when you would have formulated the almond milk recipe, like and something that can then be manufactured. Yes. um, That would have come in handy.
0: Yes, absolutely. And even to this day, my team think I'm a little bit crazy where all of a sudden I will tell the manufacturer to tweak something in our formula for a 30,000 or a 60,000 litre batch. And my team's like, are you crazy? You haven't even trialled this. And I'm like, no gut feeling, I know it's going to be fine, (laughs) trust me. So they actually uh, think I'm sometimes slightly crazy, but it's just intuition and that basic principle of how cooking works.
1: I'm really intrigued to get into the process of how this is actually made because I was watching like nonstop videos about the making of almond milk, Yes. like the other day on YouTube. That's what I was literally watching <laughs> last wow. night. Wow! No, because I just, it's, it's super, super fascinating. So we'll get into that because I think your process is quite unique in comparison to the industry standard. Um, I've, I've got to talk about your autoimmune issues because I found this really interesting because this is what got me into consuming almond milk and all this sort of stuff because I have IBS. Yes. Um, I know yours is a bit more serious with Crohn's. It's technically under the IBD yeah. banner. Um, We've got family members who've had um, Crohn's. I've actually had like a family member had to have part of their bowel removed. removed. Yeah, Yeah, it's not fun. It can be really serious. Brutal. Um, How did you... When did you sort of... When you noticed those differences, what were the major changes that you started making to your lifestyle? Because in a lot of cases with any inflammation of the gut, it is often lifestyle related.
0: Well, I was... Fifteen, turning sixteen, when I got diagnosed with actually ulcerative colitis, similar to Crohn's disease, but uh-huh. they fall in the same branch. Um, but the, colitis
1: sort of gives way to Crohn's, right?
0: Um, they're just Crohn's can in uh, like affect the entire um, digestive system. Colitis is just specifically focused on the bowel. The bowel yeah, um, but very unpleasant at disease. Either both of them, they're pretty gruesome, pretty horrific. Yeah. Um, But being a 16-year-old, I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm just told to take some tablets. Don't need to change anything. Um, And it was actually through a very painful process of going in and out of hospital for the next 10 years that I was like, okay, clearly I've got to look at alternatives and let me see if I can change my diet and try... um, a paleo diet and then let's try this diet and let's remove dairy from my diet and maybe let's take out meat and let's take out this and it was just this constant um evaluation of what I was eating. But that whole limitation of food, especially yeah. then being on MasterChef at the age of 21, I actually never told the producers that I had the disease and wow. that I was actually recovering from an episode. But I was on steroids at the time. And when you're on steroids, you're literally like hyper. You're wanting to eat everything, everything from donuts. It's like, I don't know, maybe being pregnant or something, but it's Well, it's changing your hormones. It's absolutely crazy. And sometimes when I was in my weakest state and, you know, your guts are bleeding inside out, you're literally on, you're deprived of all essential food. So you're on rice, you're on stock, you're on uh, white bread, you can't have fruit or vegetables, you can't have anything that's delicious, Um, no alcohol, no sugars. And so being on this bland diet of nothing, I would literally start to fantasise about food. I'd be like, oh, my God, that sushi, just fresh sashimi and chocolate and oh my god I'll eat this when I'm better and I would look at food completely differently so it was interesting how being like oppressed and denied basic delicious food somehow drove me to love food and cooking but that obsession became, I won't say, unhealthy, but my love of just everything from wine to the most delicious, you know, indulgent food and dining at the world's best restaurants, um that eventually took its toll where I would still keep getting sick and end up in hospital back in the same sort of horrible cycle and eventually it was really looking and trying to find solutions and a lot Mm. of that came down to being on an anti-inflammatory diet so reducing amount of meat consumed reducing the amount of dairy um, and just trying to keep a bit more of a balanced diet
1: yeah do you find yourself mainly being sort of pescatarian slash vegetarian today
0: yes so definitely you know the flexitarian or majority plant-based I love seafood but um everything in moderation and even when I was living in London being like poor I would just eat vegetables and tin chickpeas and focus on a really plant-based
1: diet. Yeah yeah I found more and more that eating um sort of a Mediterranean diet I, I think there's something to say about where your ancestors have come from it's obviously really yeah. hard when you've got something like an IBD type disease mm-hmm. um, like IBS in comparison just pales mm. in comparison to what that is. I'm just, you know, like I'm, I've am i had f- this friend of mine who has uh, Crohn's. It sounds similar like he would have to go into hospital and get sort of um, a transfusion, not a transfusion, Infusion. but what, what, what would they normally give you?
0: So uh, when you're very sick in hospital, they'll um, inject you with high doses of steroids to yep. first suppress your immune system. And there's a new class of drugs called immunomodulators, which basically tweaks your immune system entirely. So I actually go into hospital every eight weeks for treatments Uh um, to have these infusions. Wow. Uh, And that keeps me sort of ticking along, really, um, and alive and out of hospital (laughs) without my guts removed, pooping out of a bag. So I'm actually really blessed that I have not had major surgery something that I have been this close multiple times to having my guts removed, um, which is a scary, really scary um, thing to face, especially when you're a young 20-year-old to just even imagine and how that could impact your life and the changes you then need to make to your life because you're literally shitting out of a bag. It's horrific.
1: Yeah, it's really, really bad. Um, Like I said, that that family member has had like part of their um, bowel removed. It's not. He's so particular now about his diet, mm. but he has to be. Um, you, It sort of seemed like during this period is where in a lot of the interviews you spoke about you were going to non-dairy-based milks and probably like most of us that switched to this, you thought, God, this stuff is shit. Yes. Like it's, it's either sweet or it's full of things. Like for me as someone who had fructose intolerance and lac- lactose intolerance, like... The amount of things in it would, like, set me off. So I couldn't even I couldn't even really have it. Um, I just want to think of what I used to have, like, a couple of years ago. Almond Breeze, but I couldn't have more than, like, 50 mils at a time because it had, like, um, it has so much stuff in there. Yeah. And then I moved to, um, I don't know what you think about them, but Australia's own. I don't like that they put sunflower oil in it, though. Yeah. And then now... In the last six months, probably, I've been consuming Almo. That's why when I got the email, I was like, Yay. yeah, because next door, the cafe downstairs next door uses Almo. It's
0: amazing. And
1: um, I would always get, like, an almond hot chocolate cafe, uh, latte or whatever. And I was like, oh, what's, the, um, what's the milk? Almo. And then, like, I saw it more and more, and then I noticed the IGA up the road supplied it. So we switched to that, like, probably six months ago, and it's a lot – It just, I feel like getting rid of the sunflower oil, like, really Mm. helped. And they obviously put a lot of, um, a lot more binding agents. Absolutely. in, um, In a lot of these mixtures, which is what sets me off. It's those binding agents. Like, when I have protein powder, if they have, like, soy lecithin or something like that, it really, like, is not good
0: yeah you think you're drinking a healthy almond milk and then all of a sudden you look at the pack and you're like it's oh. got soy it's got vegetable oils it's got corn it's got sugar yeah. it's got flavoring. it's got corn syrup and it's made with imported <laughs> almonds that are possibly grown in such a terrible way standard anyway so exactly that you've hit it right on the head um i just saw these u.s almond milks coming onto our supermarket shelves and going this isn't almond milk this is just full of crap. Yeah. We've totally bastardized the health food industry where people actually think they're doing themselves a favor drinking almond milk and drinking Uh, soy milk, um, but yet actually don't know how it's made, what's in the product, what's in their almond latte. And it's like, guys, why are you even drinking this? Um, But look, we are so time poor in this day and age. We assume we read an article, we'll then jump onto almond milk or we'll jump onto eating high-protein diets but not actually understand the impact or the quality of what we're consuming.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's sort of, to me... It was like the low fat thing in the industry. You know, mm. like how everyone got into low fat. Yep. And then most of the low fat is just stuffed with sugar. Yes. To, to you know, replace the calories. Like you've got to, in food design, you've got to replace the calories somehow. Yes. It has to exist to make this thing work. Yes. Um, so to me, it was like a big aha moment. I, I'm sure you would have had the same. So it had me thinking. How does someone go from looking at this stuff in the supermarket to experimenting in your kitchen? And what did that first experimentation look like?
0: It was interesting, but I actually sort of skipped the kitchen part. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up going to um, a company called Dairy Innovation Australia, which was a government funded, dairy focused plant, and literally went to speak to some food technologists handed them a bucket of this beautiful almond paste that I had gotten my hands on um, and said, guys, we need to come up with a really premium almond milk. I want more almonds. I don't want any other ingredients. Just keep it as clean as possible. Mm -hmm. And I want it fortified in calcium. So what does this formulation look like? And so we started dabbling. We created six or seven different variations. We tried um, different ratios to understand the sensory taste and um, sort of the nutritional profile, mm-hmm. and eventually got to a formula that absolutely was just spot on,
1: incredible, and um, that's how Alma was made. Uh-huh. so it wasn't so much experimenting in the kitchen. That's interesting, because mm. a lot of people, um, a lot of people get into almond milk. Oftentimes, uh, just start soaking their almonds and making yes. it at home, which, which is like. An exponential compounding of the waste associated with, with yes. like, um, with with almonds. So not only do they require massive amounts of water to make, you're then soaking it in water and then chucking out what is left of the almonds, which I find really interesting about your process. You make a paste of almonds, so using the whole thing.
0: We crush them down to the point where they become liquid. Yeah. Um, And that's the biggest difference is actually uh, people that drink almond milk don't actually know how it's made. Often they think we just throw almonds in water, blend it, and um, here's this magic sieved out almond milk product. But what ends up happening is essentially activated almond milks count the water they soak those almonds in. So when you read a 10% activated almond milk, you're not actually drinking 100 grams or 10% almond content you're drinking closer to a 2 or 3% almond-based product. Mm. Consumers don't know that because yeah. both the water that is counted as part of that percentage and that pulp that gets disposed of is so environmentally unfriendly that yet consumers think they are drinking something that's sustainable and something that's yeah. really, you know, nutritious. Um, yeah,
1: you have a serious marketing opportunity there. Like I can see it already from a video campaign perspective. Um, You could do a wild campaign that really like triggers people's imagination as to what actually happens with – because like I said, I watched videos and videos last night of how almond milk is made and I cannot get over how much is wasted. And it's so inefficient.
0: And that's a scary thing, but I have for the last three years been trying to figure out how we actually communicate that to our consumers because it takes a little bit of time and right now our attention spans, even on Instagram, are less than 15 seconds. Mm. Um, how to communicate such an intricate and detailed message is one of our biggest challenges right now.
1: Yeah. It's got to be super overt. I can see it already. It's sort of like... um. Um, you wouldn't, you'd do it like a campaign um, similar to, uh, do you remember like you'd watch DVDs and if it, you wouldn't steal a handbag. <laughs> do you remember that fucking cheesy yeah. and it still remains in people's memories? You'd do something like that where it's a real comparison of the two side by side. You can do it mm. in less than 10 seconds easy. Um, might have
0: to get your consulting expertise yeah. on this one. Oh,
1: 100%. <laughs> like I can see it already and I can see it. Um, it's, it's one of those things where it is just not known by people. Mm. But it is so – like the market is getting bigger and bigger each year yeah. as more people move to almond milk. Absolutely. I mean, I know there's oat milks now, people drinking yeah. oat milks at cafe yes. and whatnot. Um, so you've come up with this mixture. You've got it. Now you're thinking, you know, you've been working on this for 18 months. You want to launch the brand. How do you come up with the name? Because the name selection is really smart because it has immediate connotations to almonds. Yes. But I think the smartest move you made was deciding to go down the route of baristas because that was, like as an example, how I found it and also an easier procuring area than, say, Supermarkets? Because mm. supermarkets, you're waiting on a big honcho decision maker. Whereas in cafes, they're all decentralized. You've got many different people that can make, in, you know, mm. cafe owners, but like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a go for a week.
0: Well, I loved cafes to begin with. So yeah. I, in Europe, anywhere where I was traveling, I would always find the best cafe I could or a roastery and just connect it with the people. And so I've had this love of cafes. And I always saw an opportunity, well, if there is almond milk, someone's got to create a beautiful premium quality almond milk for the cafe market to use. So that was always our number one proposition. We never wanted to focus on retail, but just the cafes and making an almond milk that was really high quality that would work well in coffee. Uh, So that was our original proposition. Um, but the biggest challenge, friendly enough, was when we actually launched, we came first at Melbourne International Coffee Expo. Um, our price point was $1 higher than our major competitor that had literally launched a product that very same day that we had launched um, with big budgets, crews on the ground in every state. And all of a sudden we were at war in this ridiculous situation in Melbourne where it was like, how much free stock could you give to cafes? And um, so actually we realized that retail was in fact an opportunity for us that our competition couldn't access. And so we almost pivoted and uh, well, we did pivot actually and ended up focusing more on retail than cafes. We still service as cafes, yeah. but retail has become a primary focus for us. Yeah. And that's everything from health food stores, independent grocers, IGA's and over the last three years we've built our entire business off these incredible independent um, supporters of ours.
1: Mm-hmm. The name?
0: Elmo, so yes going back to Elmo, um, really simple. Originally it was going to be called Matilda's Milk because <laughs> being very Australian I thought what's a really beautiful, innocent, lovely Um, neutral name that really can convey the message of being clean and nourishing. And for some reason the name Matilda, just Matilda's milk. Um, Do you have a friend
1: named Matilda?
0: No, but maybe I did when I was younger, some imaginary friend or, I don't know, I think Matilda's just always been this beautiful name. But, Elmo, uh, I watched that amazing Australian comedian uh, tell me and he did this little skit on YouTube where he would shorten all the Australian words. So when we say breakfast, we say brekkie. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, ambulance, ambo. Uh, service station, servo. And I think I had watched it at the time. I'm like, almond, Elmo. Elmo yeah. And I looked up the word almo. In Latin, it actually meant nourishing and sacred. Uh-huh. Uh, so I thought, well, what a brilliant name. And yeah. even the feminine, Alma, means nurturing mother. So the fact that milk nourishing sacred <laughs> there was something really special about the name to take it a step further the the real reason why i thought this is actually going to work stems back from greek alpha and omega
1: yeah
0: a o and my initials in the middle almo alpha omega leave beginning <laughs> and end i was like okay that's a sign. i'm gonna take that Ooh, <laughs> we have to run with this product
1: just random that's so good no, it is, it is a really easy name that rolls off the tongue. I think it works really well.
0: Although when I say it sometimes, depending on your accent, I've got this weird mush of Europe, languages, everything. So when I say it, sometimes it sounds like tickle me, Elmo. Yeah. Uh, not I'll, like, depends. So I,
1: I get in a lot of trouble from Lone for this because I've got, um, I've been told I, that there is a distinct accent in Victoria Where if you say salary and salary,
0: salary,
1: salary, so salary, like you you earn a A salary salary. and you eat salary. Okay. Does that make sense? They sound very similar. Yes. I've forgotten what the name for it is, but there's words like that. So Ellen and Ellen, Ellen. Yeah. It's really hard for me to say Ellen, the girl's name and Alan, the guy's name and make them sound different in conversation. Yes. Um, yeah, I just find find that like it it rolls off the tongue a lot easier. Almo, Almo Armo.
0: Yeah, whatever. Whatever, guys.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you, who like? How did you come up with the package design?
0: So I was really scared, knowing that I was putting a lot of money into producing an almond milk and having very little budget. I sort of designed the product myself. Being an absolute minimus, minimalist at heart, I actually instructed a packaging um, guru who worked at the packaging company we were sourcing our sleeves from Uh and got her help just to um, create our product. And I basically said, well, we want something to represent that beautiful almond cream or the paste that we use. Um, We want it to make it look high quality um, and less is more. So let's just make it really clean white. Uh, And so working with her developed just this beautiful... Um, design for the the brand Mm -hmm. it's evolved over time Um, and now I work with an incredible graphics designer called Chris and he just really helps me um, bring to life all these new products and I think we're going to go through another (laughs) rebrand next year or something really kapow
1: yeah you have to do one one of those every two three years new website like it's just that cliche right yeah you have to I mean we're doing our website refresh at the moment but it's just a standard thing in the world of design unfortunately Mm. but it is also the end product so you've got to be doing that
0: constantly refining adapting redoing
1: the so you've launched the product you had great success at that coffee exhibition I think you won an award yes there um so you've launched the first year or so you're really having to work uh, as a consultant or through your agency on top of doing this yes. like we all do when we first start out and we haven't gotten funding and we're sort of just uh, door knocking as as you said in one of your interviews. Uh, what were those first two years look like for you?
0: They were really brutal um, in the sense that I began ALMO and I had almost I won't say wasted twelve months, but before the product was even launched, there was no manufacturer in Australia that could manufacture our product. That's right. So almost living off scraps and dedicating so much of my time and focus to launching the product and it just wasn't happening. Um by the time I actually did find a manufacturer, I needed to like both fund myself and um get a job just to pay for it. Obviously yeah. double the cost to what I imagined. Uh, And it was a really scary leap of faith. And so I was working a contract, a full-time contracting role and hustling after hours, (laughs) lunchtimes, on weekends, sitting at cafes, delivering samples. But I've always been a bit of a multitasker, like juggling lots of things at once. Uh And and so it was a real challenge to begin with, um, but really the most daunting thing was actually leaving that full-time role to focus and dedicate my time 100% on the business. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a really lonely journey. And I realized quite quickly, I needed to find a community, I needed to find mentors, people that could help support and also an environment to work in. I was just hopeless at working at Mm -hmm. home, Um, just mentally not healthy for me. And so... I found a co-working space uh-huh. uh we're at the commons I joined um great little spot entrepreneurs organization there was an accelerator oh, really? program so that was fabulous and even this year um I've been a part of a program called the marketing academy which uh-huh. has been life-changing
1: wow yeah and, um Dan Monheit who runs hard hat which is sort of like one of the biggest independent agencies here in um in Australia he uh He's been part of EO for quite some time. Mm. He's saying like it's really, really useful, and you. I feel like, I feel like he said you have to be invite. You have to have an invite to get into it, or something like that.
0: Entrepreneurs Organization. You need to be at least making US one million dollars. That's it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but they do have accelerator programs for early stage startups. So if you're making more than two hundred and fifty thousand US dollars, you can apply for the program. It just means that you've already validated your business. Yeah. And you're figuring out how to scale and you need support on how to scale that business. So uh-huh. um, there's definitely different opportunities there.
1: Yeah. So if you think about you've launched this, you're scrapping away, you're telling your family at Easter, Christmas catch-ups. When was the first like family catch-up where you realised you could stop sort of people really like believing uh, and seeing the, the method behind the manness and, and the results, so to speak?
0: I don't quite know when my family really believed in the product. Like I think they've always been supporters of what I have done, but I have taken on so many roles, had so many ideas, ambitious projects on the run that they're like, yep, whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. just <laughs> another thing and who knows. Um, but I definitely think it was probably um, the realisation when I had one Telstra businesswoman of the oh, year. Award yeah. um, here in Victoria, and my parents came along, and they're like, "Oh, okay, she's actually doing knows <laughs> sort of working. <laughs> she sort of knows what she's doing." Fuck, but, that is so funny. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. My dad has always been a real supporter, and even hustles. They live now out in Woodend, okay. and we'll still deliver almond milk to the local cafe in Woodend, Milko. That's gold. And uh, yeah, it's just really
1: brilliant. So I've, I remember when. Um, When The thing from my parents is when we interviewed – there's some more water there, by the way, if you want some. I just Um, like holding glasses, (laughs) design,
0: aesthetic, no. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, and I think it was like the interview with Jeff Kennett and they were like, oh, this is actually a thing. You know, like it's not just some little hobby that – his latest project, like it's actually turning into something. And it's so funny when you have – That's when you know... Because your family is so raw and honest with you. Yes. Friends will just tell you, oh, yeah, it's great. Like, what you're doing is fantastic. And then they just go home and they're like, oh, fuck, I don't know what (laughs) this person is doing.
0: If you come from a migrant family, it's either you've got a corporate career, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're something. But if you're doing all these little random things like what is it that you're doing yeah. again? Is that yeah. A job? Yeah, and they're always
1: saying, like, are you sure you don't want to quit that job? That job's a very good job. Ooh. You know, you get paid very Stability, well. Stability,
0: security. Yep. Yeah,
1: so I can imagine those first years would have been like that. Um, I found in interesting reading a few of the interviews, like you're responding obviously to a, an email or written interview. You're answering emails at 10 p.m. on a Friday night. This is sort of the the standard of running this sort of business. Mm. I'm going to ask you what your day-to-day is like because you've been asked it a million times and we all know what it's like running a business. But I guess I'm curious, for you running a business, what do you love the most about having a business versus working for someone? Like there's no doubt that working hard is part of it, but having that freedom and flexibility Mm -hmm. is, is what I love the most about it.
0: Yeah, I guess freedom is an interesting concept where you might find freedom in a corporate role, but you might find freedom running your own business. At the same time, you're almost tied into a business. You've invested your own money into it. There is a much, it's a much harder escape, let's say. And so you have different shackles with running your own business or working for someone else. So it's a bit of yin and yang in that sense, (laughs) but Funnily enough, when you talk about what does your day look like, my day really is how I design it and how I um, decide to manage it. And to be honest, it's actually not what most entrepreneurs or what you hear as a successful entrepreneur in all these business books where they're up at 6 a.m., they've got routine, they've got structure. I really just wing it. I focus on... um, figuring out what my energy is doing, how I'm feeling, um, if I need to step away from the business and just stop and reflect and disconnect from it a little bit. And then there'll be periods like the last six weeks. Every weekend I have been working at some show or overseas in China at a trade show and I have not stopped. But I didn't set my alarm this morning. I got up at 8.40, I think it was. Um, it's nice. And, you know, generally... (laughs) It really varies and I actually don't mind that, but that probably suits me and my style and my routine Or not really having a routine going, right, you know what? I just actually feel like going for a coffee first to this cafe around the corner before I step into the office and actually meet my team. Yeah. And I make that decision, even though my team's already in at 8am, I make that decision based on how I'm feeling and what I need to do to be my best self
1: when I yeah. walk into that office. And, and I love that about having that freedom through the business I feel like you work better mm. like I just you know if you, if you feel one morning look I need to sleep in and then I'll actually work better throughout the day that's what's so good about it yeah. and being able to just go have that coffee unless of course you've got meetings mm. or interviews
0: absolutely that's, okay that's, and that's like oh, oh i have actually got to <laughs> be somewhere i got gonna be here <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> and then that yeah that that is the one downside I guess you could say mm. When you're thinking about AMO today, you're in Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Malaysia and Hong Kong amongst eight other eight countries in total. I know you're hiring for an operations manager mid this year. Yes. Uh, you've really got sort of two ways you can think about 20, 2020 it seems. It's expanding product or expanding markets. Mm. What, what's on your mind for the next year or two in particular?
0: It's really interesting, but every year I definitely pick a theme of what we're trying to achieve. Um, First year was all about distribution, creating a distribution network across Australia. The second year was all about moving manufacturing to Australia, so there was no chance of creating new products. This third year has all been about creating new products and expanding our range. And the fourth year, essentially, even though we have been growing um, overseas and into overseas markets. The fourth year is really about ramping up marketing. So um, bringing that educational awareness and continuing to solidify what we have been doing and getting that message out there. Mm. Still feel like we haven't had that opportunity to get our message across. Yeah. So absolutely, um, our fourth year is going to be everything about marketing and ramping things up to the next level.
1: Yeah, and I think the way you've approached it is probably the smart idea. You've really focused on product and developing that and. Building that infrastructure, and now mm. you've got the word of mouth. You know, someone like myself going to the cafe, finding out about it. Oh, it's at IGA. You can really start to accelerate or pour gasoline on that fire. Yeah, which is probably the smarter way to approach it. Yeah. Um, the process we've got to get into this because this is this is should be a key focus of your marketing. I think. Um, you know, like I said last night, I was watching these these videos. And you've got quite an interesting relationship because you've got a supplier who gives you, a, I think, 100% of your almonds, which is the Almond Co yep. Australia in South Australia. You've got your manufacturer now down the road. Um, interesting to know, I didn't know Australia obviously was the number two grower of almonds in the world. But it makes sense if you think about the landscape here versus, say, California, quite similar, mm. um, probably a bit more available land and a bit more water. Yes. Um Tell me about the actual process itself. What does it look like All from right. start to finish?
0: Let's start with the trees. Okay. So you have an almond tree. So almonds grow on trees. They uh-huh. look like apple trees. And harvest happens once a year. It happens in February through to March. So once a year, almonds will be harvested. And they are actually, funnily enough, uh, machines that grab the root of the, or the the trunk of the tree and literally shake the nuts <laughs> off the tree. They fall down to the ground, this beautiful terracotta sand, um, and all of a sudden a vacuum comes along to sweep up and vacuum all those almonds. Now, the almonds actually have two shells. So they've got uh-huh. an inside husk or a hard shell and an outside husk. And so the next process is allowing those um, almonds to dry out a little bit in the sun and they go into a facility which is at almond co and they are de-shelled and de-husked uh-huh um, and those almonds are basically stored um, for the next 12 months to supply not only australia but overseas markets and they're basically uh, de and de-shelled whenever someone wants to buy these products. Mm. What ends up happening is you get a lot of chipped, cracked, broken almonds. And generally that goes into muesli products, smoothie, you know, let's say just manufacturing grade cookies. But we realized there was an opportunity rather than taking almonds, beautiful whole almonds and soaking them and then throwing out this beautiful almond meal or pulp. To actually churning the almonds into something that looked like tahini yeah and that's a thick delicious nutritious paste that uses all the manufacturing grade almonds um, like apples there's a whole range of varieties of almonds so super proud but australia grows some of the highest quality almonds in the world world so there's non there's price there's caramels. Um, these varieties are really delicious they require bees for pollination Uh whilst the US might actually have varieties that don't require bees but taste like chalk. and so
1: Yeah, you can really taste that, by the way.
0: Yeah, that's a big difference as well of what we do. Um, The next thing is, do we use roasted almonds? Do we use blanche? Do we use the skin? And so secretly we take the skin off our almonds. We Uh use a blanche paste. And simply because realise that for digestive issues, um, the skin itself can cause or contains lectins, something that sometimes can be quite abrasive for people that have digestive issues. Yeah. Um, But also using um, the almond, just a blanched almond, it creates a white, luscious milk when you um, pasteurize that with water and calcium and salt so
1: that's really interesting
0: that's another little secret so sometimes if you pick up an almond milk off supermarket shelves i guarantee you it's um natural almonds with a skin on which is a bit and also roasted roasted almonds as well which might not actually have the nutritional benefits of a a natural delicate almond
1: well was because i was wondering that why doesn't almo give me digestive stress because it does has it has xanth- is xanthin in it. Yeah? yeah, it's a binding it
0: has 0.01% yeah. of xanthan, Yeah, is a tiny amount. Which is simply to stop that beautiful cream sitting on the bottom, not so much to thicken it, um, but simply to stop it from completely separating after six months yeah. and solidifying on the bottom and clumping.
1: So I've had lots of, um, you know, like more, you know, those sort of like almond milk Co was another one I had and it was... It was similar, but it would still, like, give me issues. And I was like, why is that? And I think it it must be uh, the, the skin because lectin is high in sorbitol. Yes. So lectin is also sometimes used as a binding agent in certain products. Yes. Yes. Um, So that would make a bit more sense.
0: That would be one reason. The second reason is when you're drinking a fresh almond milk, it's actually not safe for pregnant women, those with autoimmune conditions, children even to consume. The reason goes back to those almonds dropping down on that beautiful sand where there's kangaroos pooping, there's bugs, there's you name it. So almonds naturally contain low levels of things like E. coli, salmonella, aflatoxins. And when you throw an almond into water, you're basically germinating any bacteria in that water and soaking it. So after 48 hours, you've already got almost a higher level of bacteria. (laughs) And then that's why almond milk goes off so quickly when you make fresh almond milk. Uh, It's a real um, interesting insight where people go, oh, I want to drink fresh almond milk. But at the same time, it's actually riskier and sometimes you might not trust the barista that's accidentally left that bottle for three days or yeah. four days and it's actually gone off and it's curdled and it smells funny, but baristas don't notice that. so that's well, they don't an, bother to check. Yeah, so that's another reason why we decided to create a long life product that was actually safe for those with autoimmune conditions, women, breastfeeding, um, pregnant women and children.
1: Mm. When can we see... I don't know if you are at the moment, but are you stocked in Coles or Woolies at all? Or is that going to be Funnily enough, we are
0: both, actually. Uh, so Woolworths, we're in 50 select stores here in Victoria. And funnily enough, we're working with Coles Local at the moment. Okay. So there is a new branch of Coles, which is more of a local focus. Ah-ha, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, and through our distributor, they've managed to get their hands on Elmo and it's <laughs> sitting there on shelf at um, Coles Local. I think there's one in St Kilda. There's one somewhere in the eastern suburbs, I think in Hawthorne, Toronga, right. maybe.
1: Do you know, I saw recently there's um, a Coles opening at the top of Burke Street, not far from where we are here in East Melbourne. And it was going to be an express, but I think it may be one of these new... Is the new local thing sort of they have more organic food and stuff like that?
0: Um, it's interesting. I think it's a really refined offering, um, local-based products. So if there's any Victorian products, they'll try and prioritise adding uh-huh. that. A bit more of a premium offering from the day-to-day usual stuff that you yeah. find at Calls. The size and the format is quite different, um, and it's also more experiential. So you can fill up your own jugs. You can do all sorts of other things. So retailers are now testing and trying to refine what it is that they offer for mm-hmm. consumers and customers.
1: Yeah. Okay you mentioned before or in other interviews with this process um, just going back to farming about irrigation practices in yes. California versus Australia. Mm. What like the key differences with that?
0: Big difference. Um, If you own a piece of land in California, you can basically take all the water that is beneath that land um, and you don't pay for it. So whatever you find, it's yours. Whilst in Australia, um, with every piece of land, um, there's basically brokered rights. So you're paying for every megalitre of water you consume. Now, this brokering system in Australia, all of a sudden there was a range of companies buying up um, those brokering water rights and the price essentially fluctuates. But you give a drought, given the drought, obviously, in Australia, um, water goes through the roof or when you see more um, trees being planted, more vegetable crops being planted, more grapes for wine. All of a sudden the demand increases so basic business principles but here in Australia we have significantly um, improved our irrigation standards and water practices Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes almonds yes are attributed to consuming a lot of water but nowhere near as it's nowhere near close to consuming water for broccoli uh, oranges grapes table grapes even um, dairy. So it's all relative. Uh-huh. Um, and why water was such a significant issue in California was California simply grows 90% of the world's almonds. Of course, it's going to consume all of the yeah. water. If it was 90% broccoli, the world's broccoli, similar or even worse situation. So that concentration of farming simply, um, yeah, has an impact on water. A massive impact.
1: Tell me, uh, this is something I've been debating with mates recently um, and I feel like you spoke about it at some point. uh, For people who go from dairy to non-dairy milks is the debate of soy versus almond. Mm. Now, I remember having a chat to my GP about this and she explicitly told me that soy, particularly for males, is not good in excess. Mm. Um, And she covered numerous studies that spoke about that because, you know, she said... If you're fructose or lactose intolerant, I need to tell you about this. Um, even though sh- she sent me off to a dietitian, the dietitian said the same thing. Mm. For the mates who are who are you know very pro soy, what benefits would you say are there to almond over, yeah. say, soy?
0: So interestingly, soy is a bean. Um, it has slightly higher protein, however, can bloat people and can cause digestive issues. Yeah. The second being um, soybeans are naturally estrogen-rich product, so, of course, have been attributed to... Um, causing all sorts of hormonal irregularities. Um, When my mum had breast cancer, we completely removed soy and any soy-based products, even edamama beans, from her diet. Really? um, Because she had estrogen-positive breast cancer. So estrogen-rich foods, there's a whole list of them, and automatically we decided to remove that from her diet. Um, Especially for um, consumers of almond milk there's generally um it's much more um enriched in other uh, good fats so monounsaturated fats like avocados Mm. um we fortify our almond milk in calcium so that's just generally something else um a a third of of the calories generally um than than dairy milk or soy So I guess it's just a balance, really, of understanding what you are consuming. But it actually comes down to the almond milk itself, not just almond milk in general or the soy milk. Um, You might find some really high quality soy milks that come out of Japan. The beans have been fermented whilst you might be drinking a soy milk that's really commercialized, hasn't been fermented, has 10 other ingredients. I truly believe it's not what milk you consume. It's the brand and the specific process around how that milk has been formulated. So, for those that have their own cow on a farm, drink fresh, unpasteurized milk, I say go for it. Um, For those that make their own soy milk from fermented soybeans, absolutely do that, especially if your ancestors have been consuming soy. Um, Almond milk, if you're drinking almond milk for health reasons or for diet related reasons, do read into the almond books that you are consuming. Compare the protein over percentage because there's some misleading uh, claims around percentage of mm-hmm. almonds used. So
1: Yeah, 100%. That was the biggest thing I learned in particular. Mm. That's why I think you're going to have a really interesting opportunity with marketing that educational difference.
0: Yes. There's a lot
1: of people that are unaware and would almost be um, annoyed mm. about that fact.
0: I think a lot of consumers will get very angry and it's almost something that we would love to bring up um, and have the ACCC investigate because consumers believe they're actually consuming 100 grams of almonds or 10% almonds and it's actually really misleading. So there's a lot of diluted claims in the industry. There's a lot of stuff that we see on our end that we think is just not um industry standard or industry practice
1: before we jump into the rapid fire questions i like to ask or i guess i've got to ask who are the sort of global competitors that we regularly see if you if someone wants to consume australian only mm. who are the global companies that you typically see on australian shelves
0: So number one would be Califia Farms, and that's a Californian based company using Californian almonds. Blue Diamond, which is a U.S. owned cooperative U.S. almonds again. Mm. Uh, Even Australia's own organic, majority of the time they source their almonds from overseas. Um,
1: That's interesting. We have
0: uh, Inside Out is now owned by Coca-Cola, which consumers won't know, but that's something that's happened really recently. And also Oatly, which is now owned by China Resources, a Swedish oat milk company that got bought out by the Chinese government, a Chinese government-funded company. And that is global.
1: Yeah, I I think um, there's a lot... Like Australia's own, that's interesting to me because I was consuming that, obviously, as I said.
0: Um,
1: And I was just looking at the back of the packet the other day when I was in the IGA and... um, there's just not much there.
0: Mm. And, and when I'm you guessing- see a $2 organic milk, you actually should question because how do you get a significant amount of almonds that are organic at such a low price? There's something not quite right. I'm going to tell consumers and everyone else out there you have to pay for quality. Sometimes you think you're getting a bargain and you're buying organic, but organic standards in Australia are significantly different from organic standards overseas and organic standards um, globally. So in China, we're actually not allowed to call the turmeric that we use in some of our products organic because they have a completely different level of certification. Wow. So um, we simply believe in consuming local because we know and trust that almonds are not fumigated in propylene oxide. It's something that consumers won't even know, and they'll be like, what is propylene oxide? Majority of US almonds are fumigated with a toxic gas to kill that bacteria, as we were Uh speaking about. Um, They're fumigated in propylene oxide. That's a banned carcinogen in Europe. So if you're drinking a coffee that's not our almond barista blend product, I guarantee you you're most likely drinking uh, propylene oxide fumigated almonds. Sorry to scare everyone. You're (laughs) going to be like, oh, my God, Linda, stop. stop
1: No, I I think this is really interesting because, again, it's it's this area where um, people think low-fat good, Mm. but it's not. It's actually just full of shit. Yeah. And – I think there's going to be quite an awakening, hmm. which is going to be very interesting. We need
0: like a MasterChef version of the health industry or something, just to like really shake and educate
1: consumers. Yeah, no, you could definitely. I could see a campaign already. There's there's some interesting stuff there. Um, all right, rapid fire questions. We've just gone over an hour. Uh, what's your morning routine look like?
0: Uh, wake up definitely get out a really good batch of coffee so coffee beans from any roaster and make myself a filter coffee okay that's my morning routine uh and if i can't be bothered making coffee i will walk to our nearest cafe and just have a ritual close my eyes meditate and think of what i need to achieve that day okay
1: at night how do you decompress
0: i have become really good at blanking out my mind and absolutely netflix binging is a good one or uh, going for a walk back from the office to home um is generally what i do
1: okay netflix what have you been watching recently
0: Oh, mind hunters
1: that's really good.
0: Mindhunters is brilliant. Uh, the Crown, of course. Yeah. Really inspiring. Great series. And uh, what else? I'm sure there's a lot to catch up on Netflix.
1: <laughs> All right. Last question for you. You've got to pick a book. Christmas is coming up mm. for the audience. If you had to gift it to them, what would it be and Why?
0: The most recent uh, and I think first Polish woman to receive a Nobel Prize for Literature, Olga Tokarczuk. I can't pronounce it properly. I should be able to pronounce it. Flights, it's a really bizarre, interesting, magical book that she's written. Huh. Uh, and she's also won some Man Booker Prize Awards, but absolutely uh, love her style of writing. It takes you to another level. It's a really unique style and something that will inspire the imagination. I think we're oversaturated with business books and five tips and yeah. do this and do that and productivity and efficiency. Get out of your world, be inspired by something else, rethink what you are here on this planet to do.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm reading a very interesting book at the moment called Tribe about um, start. the premise of it is why did... A lot of white settlers in America run off to join Indian tribes. Oh, why? And uh, well, the reason is community, predominantly. Yeah. So I'm getting into that at the moment, but it's actually by a, a writer who used to do um, like war documentaries, and he talk he he speaks about the parallels between um, uh, a group like a platoon being a tribe, and how a lot of the times when these soldiers come back from war, the reason they have PTSD or or issues is because they're no longer with their community or their tribe mm. and they can't deal with it. Fascinating. So it's a really interesting book. Um, anyway, I'm only about a third of the way through. So, um, Linda, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. How can people find you and Elmo on the interwebs?
0: definitely instagram is probably an easy way to stalk us so mm-hmm. almo milk or um yeah definitely linkedin if you want to personally connect i'm always mentoring certain uh, businesses and individuals i love connecting and catching up with people for coffee so definitely linkedin linda monique or almo milk or www.almomilk.com.au
1: awesome we'll make sure we link all that but um thanks for coming in
0: thank you it's been a pleasure
1: awesome Thanks for listening in to this episode. If you like it, do leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us continue going on a weekly basis and we do love reading those reviews as well. Uh, if you want the show notes, you can find that below or with our previous guests at naral.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R, dot slash podcast to watch the full video search uncommon show on youtube and to keep up to date with behind the scenes and clips for the show you can find us at uncommon underscore show on instagram But until next time guys thank you so much for listening